<laughs> yeah, I like this right here. Makes me feel free. It's got that, uh, you know, that pump. Ba-dum, bum, ba-da-da-da-da, mister. Ba-dum, bum, ba-da-da-da-da, world. Ba-dum, bum, ba-da-da-da-da, wide. <laughs> Let's just stay free to do what I want. Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill Bohr, it is almost July. Yeah, this has been an interesting year and uh, it does not <laughs> it does not get any less challenging. What is the Chinese proverb? May you be born in interesting times. May you not be born in interesting times. I thought it was may you be born. I don't think you want to be born in interesting times. I actually looked up the origin of that. It was not, it was a early 20th century British guy in China, who came up with it? All right. Well, yeah. yeah. So we are not on the side we want to be. We want to be not be born in interesting. Yeah, I don't think you want to be in interesting times. <laughs> Usually, <laughs> interesting times means there's turmoil, chaos, change, potential for great new things, but also potential for incredible disasters as well. Well, in four days, we'll celebrate Independence Day, and provided that there's not a massive alien attack. Right. Like there was in the film, the sequel to which was pretty disappointing. Yeah, I didn't watch the sequel. I thought the original one was pretty entertaining. Yeah, I, I don't think we, I don't think, uh, I think on the list of things we have to be really worried about, uh, aliens attacking is way down there on the list of what our, <laughs> what could be our potential doom as a country. You never know. Yeah. You never know. Uh, I, don't, uh, I don't know if we'll talk about it or not, but uh, highly recommend, again, Dan Carlin's latest Common Sense, uh, The D- Day of the Dove, uh, named after a Star Trek episode. Uh, and it talks, again, he's just remarkable in his ability to kind of see things from a position that, that fairly, I think, does a good job of assessing multiple sides of a problem. And, uh, you know, I had kind of, he takes Peggy Noonan to task a bit. And I, uh, and originally when I just skimmed her article, I, uh, I'll be honest with you, after the shooting, uh, the tragic shooting in Virginia, uh, I really didn't read it that carefully and kind of agreed with the over, yeah, kind of the overarching trajectory of it, of the editorial. But he, he does an interesting job saying that even in her call to be nonpartisan, she's remarkably partisan. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so I, you know, the and the other thing too was what I think uh, his discussion of what uh, you know everyone's kind of banding around the idea of civil war and and putting in context what's going on now as compared to what happened you know in the years sixty nine to nineteen seventy one. What there was forty thousand bombings in the country during a period of like sixteen months during that time period. Yeah, that I mean that was astounding. Yeah, and I mean, I was just a kid during that time, and I do remember there being a lot of unrest. And um, but uh, and part of what he, I think, his interesting perspective is what would people do now uh, if there was, you know, I mean, you can figure out how many bombings a day that was, you know. I mean, we. Have, oh yeah, and he was basically saying like some of yeah. the stuff the Nixon administration did, which would be tame. Yeah, I mean now or now like 
I mean, he would say we would just take such extreme measures. I mean, we 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 would just. I mean, we would have overreacted far beyond what Nixon did if yeah. anything like that happened today. Yeah, the post nine eleven realities that we are our sensitivities and our hyper fear. You know, and he does. He talks. Uh, he reminds us of uh, FDR and one lefty jokes. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. And he goes in nineteen forty one. There were a lot more things to fear than fear itself. But perhaps the biggest danger we have um, in our current society is the kinds of things people are doing and the level how the rhetoric keeps getting higher and higher and what we may ultimately do out of out of fear yeah it's interesting i was uh, i was rereading some stuff today from my teacher's book jeffrey stout democracy and tradition and he kind of he's talking about the democratic tradition and, and, and sort of being he's he's sort of the whole book is sort of an argument against pitting democracy versus tradition like you yeah. have he's trying to sort of you know, you have these traditionalists like people like Stanley Harawas or Alistair McIntyre that say it's tradition versus democracy. And you have like secular democratic liberal theorists like John Rawls who who kind of advocate for a sort of seemingly anti like democracy, a sort of anti premodern tradition. And he's sort of trying to thread the needle there. But he has a description of of uh, he's quoting David Hollinger. And he says it's worth quoting this at length here. He says that, that we have who's Hollinger is a historian. He says that there are three formidable constituencies that are currently contending for the control of the American state. Now, this is written probably a decade ago, but it still probably rings pretty true. One is a business elite that in an age of international corporations finds more and more of its employees and factories abroad. This elite has some need for the American state, but it can get along without attending very carefully to the needs of the nation, the people who constitute the community of American citizens. The second constituency identifies with one or more of the diasporas and sees the United States more as a site for transnational affiliations than as affiliate affiliation of its own. The proponents of diasporic consciousness sometimes look to the state for entitlements, but like the business elite, they have little incentive to devote themselves to the welfare of the civic national community. In the meantime, a third constituency has claimed America with vengeance. This third constituency is made up of a great variety of middle Americans, evangelical Christians, advocates of family values, and supporters of Newt Gingrich and of Rush Limbaugh. Many of these Americans are suspicious of the state, except as an enforcer of personal morality, but they claim the nation as in effect their own ethnic group hmm, it's interesting yeah and um it was funny i uh i spent yesterday uh with a young woman who's um she's like family to myself and my kids and uh she is battling late stage cancer um and i was there with her as she was getting her chemo and i was at university of pennsylvania and it's been a while since i've been in there since they've done they have a whole wing and section devoted to their cancer treatment and each you can the floors are are listed by what cancer they're battling and i mean it was a massive operation there again i would argue you know probably pence one of the, you know the top hospitals in the country certainly in the east um, and it just struck me the sheer amount of 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 cost that was there and uh also the fact that she um uh, was terminated by her employer uh, and told that her health benefits were canceled. And um, and what's keeping her alive is her treatment right now. Um, and also, you know, maintain a kind of quality of life, uh, keeping the cancer at bay the best that it can. Uh, now, it worked out that uh, either by uh, compassion or fear of lawsuit, <laughs> she got uh, – she was at not only got her benefits through COBA reinstated, or at least through COBA, but also um, 
her former employees helping pay for it. So that's all good. But, um, I mean, she was just a, um, you know, I mean, she could very well have been given, you know, a, a def, an early death sentence from this. And, and I was just sitting there just, you know, I don't know, but there was probably thousands of dollars worth of drugs going through her body yesterday. And I, you know, I, I, I was, I came home and I was just so many different emotions were going through me. And so I, I was reading something about a single, single payer. Uh, and someone had posted something and list why it would be good about a single payer. So I just reposted it on Facebook and immediately, you know, from, uh, from, not from West Virginia, but from where I grew up in South Central Pennsylvania, you know, there was like three responses. And, uh, one person said, this can't be constitutional. So I actually didn't respond impersonally. I just copied an article that says by both conservative and liberals, Scholars say why it is constitutional. And then someone yelled, you're crazy. What about my freedom? What about my liberty in capital letters? And I, I, it really struck me that how uh, things are getting reduced down to that. I mean, in other words, instead of, uh, again, I wasn't expecting to have a thoughtful policy, uh, healthcare policy conversation on Facebook, but that that immediately went, they went to the liberty card uh, in capital letters and you know, to me, that person very much represents that third group who everything, everything is an affront. And people started talking about, you know, all these horror stories about the, what the government had done or not done to them. I almost, I almost put, yeah, we need to have that government keep their hands off my social security as well. But I didn't, I didn't put that, but it did illustrate to me part of the problem of discourse. Uh, again, Facebook is not a very good forum for a lot of meaningful conversation, but the knee jerk reaction to people I hardly even know, um, it, it really was a, um, just a reminder of 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 why we are in in such um, such a problematic place as a society. Well, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes said that you know taxes are the price we pay for civilized society, and I think there is a sense in which yes, uh, a kind of universal health care system would impinge on my liberty in one sense and 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 enrich it in others. Like so, if if appropriation of my personal property and resources is a, is a, is it, I mean this is part of what governments can do, right? They they can use force <laughs> and they can collect taxes. And so on one level, you could say there is a sense in which but it, it, there's a sense also in which it, it things like that could create liberty, right? Part of what is I think economically deleterious about the way we do healthcare is that we're you're sort of married to a job that's at a full-time level, usually, unless you're part of a very progressive company like Starbucks or something, because even part-time people benefits. Right. So generally, the the economy, it, it, it can't dynamically deploy you where maybe your skills are best. Maybe right. you're a freelancer and you could work at three places and, and all, it would be better for all three places and for you. But then because of the great cost of health, so you, you could talk about ways in which all arrangements we have in common will i mean there's a combination always of a a a limitation but also hopefully opportunity and and so i mean i guess you have and i think one of the things that that stout quoting ferguson is arguing is that the kind of big interests that we feel you know this corporate interest the kind of social conservatives and and what he's calling sort of multicultural liberals none he thinks that no no None of those actually is has an interest in a sort of we're in it together, right? Civic imagination, right? right. And so then everything becomes a zero sum game. So, like for instance, you know, when you when you think of like a sort of modern definition, I think uh, Milbank in his book Theology and Social Theory, which is long, and I've read a few times, and I resent it 
a little bit every time. Like, it's a great book, but it's <laughs> it's too, a challenge. It's too long, and it's it, and it's, his, his prose is not very elegant. But but it's an important and a good book, one which I take lots of disagreements with. But he talks about how in modernity everything becomes an ontology of violence. So all econ- economic theory is on scarcity, not abundance. And so mm-hmm. political theory is you know when we're doing political science, we don't think of it the way someone like Aristotle would have as as the highest form of science because it's you know, human beings as rational animals right. living in a polis. This is where we can come together and reason about the goods we have in common. He says, for us, it just makes automatic sense, the modern definition. Like when you, when you hear Aristotle's definition, where the hell does that exist? But when you hear like a modern definition, well, this is the sort of machinations structurally that the state uses to manage competing egoisms. Oh, well, then that sounds exactly what we do. We just turn on cable news. This yeah. is the, so I think that, that that sort of capacity to not imagine ourselves as in it together is kind of what probably limits our ability to, to think about problems in imaginative ways and to, and to be able to sort of not, it, it's, it's like we can't avoid a zero sum game. Like if this, right. if, 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 if a, then not B, you know, there, there's an inability to, to sort of have a sort of more generous and imaginative political discourse and imagination, which is. Yeah. You know, you know, it's what, for instance, I, I was, uh, it's one of the reasons I was listening to John Kasich talk, the governor of Ohio, who was a, you know, a very conservative member of the House. Yeah, you know, he's not a he's he's not a liberal. I wouldn't even call him a moderate. But part of why he sounds so different than both what's going on in the Republican Congress and with the president is he still talks about common values. You know, he's a governor and he has to take care of a diverse population. And he you know he cares about infrastructure. He cares about the drug problem in his in his uh, state. And so it was funny. I was listening to him and I go, how come this guy didn't end up the candidate, you know, the, the candidate? How come this guy isn't our president right now even, you know? And it's part of that. Um, he is, he harkens back to a, a time, he harkens back to ideals that are absolutely essential for the preservation of our society, but he doesn't fit in well with that uh, with that group anymore, the, 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 the America first people or the, uh, the tribal people. And, you know, I think the demonization of the immigrants and the aliens and the other, I mean, that, that stuff, um, you know, again, I think sometimes people jump too quickly, but, uh, to, uh, you know, historical parallels, but that, that kind of, when scapegoating becomes public policy, we're, we're in a da- we're in a dangerous place. Yeah, I, I'm just still, you know, as I hear you talking about that, I, our bridges and our roads are crumbling. Our the the grid is, you know, is in bad shape. I mean, I mean, I'm not talking about you know, we, people talk about infrastructure, but, but infrastructure is what keeps us going as a society. It's what allows us to continue to move from one place to the other. It's what allows us to power our houses and such. And the fact is that when our infrastructure is borderline, I don't want to say third world, but it's certainly behind uh, even what's going on in China and other places right now. And there's talk about cutting taxes. You know, I mean, there's not there's no no one's putting money towards that. We're not even that's that legislation isn't even on the table. The improvement of things that I mean, it's kind of like uh, that. Well, the plumbing in my house doesn't work, but I'm, uh, you know, and the electrical systems a lot of shorts in it. But I'm going to get a new security system. That's kind of what I mean, that's the analogy for for what's going on in our country, I think. And it's just it's kind of maddening to see but we don't even really have that big of a concern what we're leaving for our children, whether it be the debt, whether it be infrastructure, whether it be health care, uh, what we've allowed the educational system to become. 
I, you know, our our parents and our grandparents and our great grandparents sacrificed greatly for there to be improvements in each generation. And uh, my goodness, how many of our you know ancestors and uncles and how many twenty something year old men never made it past the battlefields of Southeast Asia and uh, I mean Asia Pacific and and Germany in order to preserve our freedom? And I, I you know, I just it is a mean spirited, selfish time we live in. Yeah, it's interesting to talk about like selfishness. Like, there's Stout commenting on Ferguson's types. He says, associated with the three constituencies, we have a set of stock characters the jet setting executive, the Bible thumping evangelical, and members in good standing of the cult of ethnicity in all its forms. Those who play the roles can purchase the requisite uniforms, gear, and preferred sources of infotainment for multinational corporations, which have discovered how to fill their coffers by multiplying and merchandising identities. But be warned, anyone who buys in is agreeing to conform to a type. The process of conscription starts early. The main choice that many young people think they face today is which type in a standard menu of types to conform to. This choice first presents itself to children in schoolyard options like jock, nerd, babe, goth, straight, edge, homeboy, and skateboarder, each with its own costly emblems and accoutrements. Boys can be like their favorite sports hero. Girls can be like their favorite pop star if only they fork over the cash. But none of these options provides a means of escaping an essentially docile role and one of the three main adult constituencies, unless the activities and role models they involve happen to awaken a desire for excellence and self-cultivation for individuality. It's very interesting. It it's, very, it's a little, but it's a little, uh, a bit of a downer too. <laughs> but, I mean, but it's, it's, it, I mean, and style is interesting. And he's one of the best teachers I've ever had, maybe the best. But he, you know, he's an Emersonian. He calls himself an Emersonian perfectionist, big Emerson fan. But he, he really thinks that that that, that part of democratic process is uh, people it's eudonomia right it's 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 not just freedom from certain kinds of constraint but freedom for a cultivation of the good life you know like yeah. as classically conceived that you know to to cultivate a real self to be a, a, a individual for him is not a, a dirty word like it is for some mostly kind of anti-modern traditionalists but he thinks that that's part of the gift of democratic culture to create space where people can become can pursue excellence and can be reason exchangers with a sense that the the deliberative process of exchanging reasons together is for a common good yeah. even though we have disagreements about how to pursue those goods but but I think it is tough again when when you when there's little sense of a shared common good that we're argue, that we deliberate about and argue about in, in, in political discourse in a public discourse but we can agree about a pursuit of a good just maybe the different we disagree on the particular routes to get there but when, but when you do have this sort of you know kind of fragmented sense that there's even a, sh- a shared good then then i think that that the kind of democratic project is it's a challenging one well I, i'm interested what would you say i, I mean the christian tradition has uh, now people will critique it and whatever, but there has been for, let's say, Augustine forward, uh, uh, a great tradition of political, of Christian political thinking and theory. And part of they had to because they were sometimes not only were they partners with power, but they sometimes had to step in when there was a broke, you know, when there was a collapse of society. Think of Gregory the Great in Rome, whatever. Um, and of course, um, you know, you've got one stream of what Catholic social teaching is. Um, out of the Reformation, you know, maybe the most coherent Political social theory comes out of the reform tradition. I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, in terms of these 
um, the third category, which you include conservative evangelicals in, what kind of, is there a conscious merge, is there a conscious Christian way of thinking about their political theory, or do you think this particular tribe just has appropriated them, and so they throw in Christian symbols, though a very different agenda is driving what's going on, if it doesn't have anything to do with the faith? Well, I mean, it's interesting. Donald Trump got more of the evangelical vote than than anybody since they've been looking at it. I mean, more than George W. Bush. And also, you know, most evangelicals, when they polled, when Obama was president, 67% said that you couldn't be a good president without, without like a certain kind of moral and spiritual character. And then when Trump got elected, that dropped to 32%. Right. <laughs> when, he, when he got the nomination. Probably, yeah. That really Barack Obama may be the most morally upright person we've had. Yeah, in a while. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've, it was funny too. I was, Nicole Wallace was talking about how George W. Bush was, you know, when Keith Oberman was on MSNBC, hey, Mr. President, you, 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 you might, we just want you to know Keith Oberman said some pretty tough stuff. Why is he talking about it? He's on Sports Center. I love that guy. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know he's on MSNBC. <laughs> I love that guy. He's on Sports Center. <laughs> I remember when uh, they, he said Putin made fun of his dog. You know, this little dog. See, my dog's bigger, stronger than your dog. He's like George was like, man, my dog's just an awesome little dude. <laughs> but I, I, I George Bush, fond memories yeah. at this point. Um, so now I think you know it's interesting, and uh, I could see that maybe the when the definitive history of the Trump, Trump administration is written, it might be it might be yeah. Take the George W. Bush quote from the inauguration. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That was some weird shit. <laughs> yeah, they, I, Roger Scruton has a lecture. You can find it, I think, if you go like search Roger Scruton, yeah, Freedom of Religion, Vanderbilt University. It'll come up in iTunes or something. and Or just Google it. And he talks about how that... He, he lays out this argument that basically in we go from a set of laws in the, the Judeo-Christian tradition to Jesus changing those into duties although he says that the, there's rabbinic precedent in this you know right, when right. when the, it was a gamaliel to say you know we'll convert if you could recite the whole torah on one leg and he, he stands on one and says love the lord your god with all your heart soul and mind you know yeah. your neighbor yourself so he said when jesus transforms this from from commands to to interior duties right that and then and then when he does things like says render unto caesars what caesars and gods to gods he says that lawmaking should be done in the spirit of religion but not with the force of religion it makes yeah, space for right. innovation a separation of church and state and so and this is you know he points out with with saint paul this is actually where the the christian church was persecuted not because it 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 was counter religious to the state but that it wouldn't worship the emperor or set up a counter state to the state but that it wouldn't worship the emperor that that it, it required the emperor to stay not a divinity like like augustus and others made pretensions to be and so and then he lays out this argument where you go from this sense of duties to in the christian tradition a develop a development of rights and so with natural law and things right. like this and we and then you know the 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 rational aquinas like with aristotle looks at the the the, per, the persona in a civil society as a rational actor that has duties and rights and that sort of thing. So I, I, he, so he argues that our, our liberal society, it's a brilliant lecture and Scruton's, you know, I mean, he's a pretty conservative guy and a brilliant philosopher, British philosopher. He also writes like oratorios and operas. He's just a Renaissance man. But he argues that basically our enlightenment style or, or, or our liberal 
tradition of civic freedom comes not from the Enlightenment, although it's reimagined in the Enlightenment, but from a revelation 2,000 years ago in a backwater of the Roman Empire. <laughs> and it's an interesting, it is interesting because you, you, and then, I mean, he thinks that, and again, this is, this is the polemic of his argument that basically he thinks that you, that, that if Christianity is displaced in the West, that it's two main contenders, radical, a, a radical form of, of Islam Mm-hmm. And a radical form of atheism, a militant kind of atheism, don't have the the internal resources. It seems to him to offer the kind of space for freedom and dignity of the in the individual that the Judeo Christian tradition has developed in the West. Now, you could take issue with him on many of those points, but again, it's an elegant lecture. But that, I do think that that it is interesting about the the dignity of the individual and something about uh, you know I. It, 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 I, I, we've talked about this a little bit, I think, in the past podcast. I mean, it's all just running together in my head, but I, I think about like free speech and, and the censorious nature of, of our culture, you know, it, 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 and now it's, it seems to be in certain spaces on the left where like Ann Coulter or who's it, Charles Murray, the guy who wrote the bell curve, like their protesters come out and just won't let them speak right, on campuses. Right. Whereas some of that stuff used to happen on the right now more, it's currently happening more on the left and, Although disinviting of speakers to campuses for political reasons is about 50-50, I just learned. But but I wonder if some of that, like, if free speech only exists in a culture that values speech. Hmm. So, like, if I don't really value difference, if I really don't think that I can learn something from someone who is a, an individual with dignity and worth and has things to say and contribute to a public conversation that as do I, and you know, and that we, there's a kind of shared trust that we all have something to bring to the debate. Like if, if I don't believe those things and I'm just part of one of like Stout's right. factions that's competing for the goods that are available and I got to get them or before the av- you get or them. Or the advertising on right, TV and radio. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, that's, it's unfortunate. I think, um, uh, some people had some great idea to make some money by tapping into, you know, now we have all these options so we can play to different constituencies and make money off of it through advertising. Uh, but this may, they may have let the genie out of the bottle here and they may not be able to get it back in because they made money by keeping it as Dan Carlin observes. You make money by keeping the temperature at a certain level in terms of the heat of the discourse. So MSNBC's ratings are off the, off the chart right now. Uh, uh, and at the same time, people cheer Trump as attack on the media. Um, so the trouble yeah, it's is- interesting because it it works for Trump and it works for the media. Like, it works for both of them. Yeah, it, it, I mean, Trump feels empowered. He feel it, it, for the base. It's like, hey, you, and then the media gets the ratings, and, and it's just sort of. I mean, it, it hurts the, the common good, but it, it does hurt the common good. And you know, the other thing I think that's interesting. He talks about both the the guy who who end up killing. Uh, the Good Samaritans in Portland when he was attacked, verbally attacking two women he thought were Muslims and the guy, the shooter in, um, you know, in, in Virginia that opened fire on the Republican congressman. Uh, he says, you know, Dan Carlin says, these are the canaries in the cave. Yeah. These are the weakest people. But that doesn't mean it's not coming towards larger numbers of people. You know, one of the things I think that is a challenge um, in a representative democracy where we are the magistrate. You know, in terms of the New Testament did not anticipate uh, or speak to um, people who were given the mandates of Christ, who also had power. I mean, it's, it's, at some level, this is this is a development that's not really addressed in the New Testament. Uh, uh, you could even argue that in part, the, the success of the Christian movement is part of why um, we have 
the kind of freedom we have in societies and things like that. I mean, yeah, they, Weber argues that, that the church in Western society creates like a, 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 a space for civil society, something that's not the state, not the family, and then guilds and things like that. Right. And, and you, it, civil society is sort of what makes democracy work, right? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And the Enlightenment Project is not, is not really trying to uh, uh, destroy the Christian project as much as supplant it. You use it in many ways doing the same kinds of things you know, that the faith did in a secular way. Uh, but I, the challenge to me, you know, again, this coming weekend and next week's uh, observance of the 4th of July, uh, maybe the real challenge is for Christians who have been given these mandates to love the world, to love our neighbor, uh, to love as Christ's love and all that falls from that. And Bonhoeffer has wonderful, by the way, we don't, we should talk about that. Maybe we pick up ethics because he talks a lot about the mandates. I think there's that one section, a couple sections in Bonhoeffer's ethics where he may actually be trying to do what I'm about to say in that how do you deal with these the mandates that are given to us by Christ and the particular situation that we exist in you know democracy uh, maybe on the verge of post democracy uh, in this time and place and I think what does it mean for us to use our freedom in a way that glorifies God and reflects that we actually know who Jesus is yeah and you know I think one of the best things I've read on this in recent years. Paul Zoll in his book, Grace and Practice, has a chapter called uh, Grace and Politics. And he really is trying to figure out if I, what I say is true, and I believe the heart of you know Christianity, at, at the heart of it is what he calls a monergism of mercy, then what does that look like? And he, he, and he who probably is a Republican, he said, at one point he says, I think it would look like a non-ideological or a, a non-utopian welfare state, like that we'd we just take care and be merciful, although we wouldn't do it with the idea that we could perfect society. Right. And that's sometimes the, the idol of those on the left is if you could social engineer a perfect society. He thinks that that's what Christians would, would be merciful without being utopian and think that, you know, there'll always be problems. But our yeah. first our first act ought to be of, of one of compassion, the one who's been you know, forgiven much, loves much. Our, our first act ought to be like, how, how would we see the vulnerable in light of how God has treated us in our vulnerability. Yeah, I think Halleck says, uh, the task of the contemporary Christian movement is not to reconquer lost territory, but to embrace those who are broken, weak, and most vulnerable. Amen. Merchant ships Minutes after they took I From the bottomless pit But my hand was made strong By the end of the Almighty We forward in this generation Triumphantly won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption songs Redemption songs Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our mind have no fear for atomic energy Cause 
Cause none of them can stop the time How long shall they kill our prophets While we stand aside and look Some say it's just a part of it We've got to fulfill the book Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption songs Redemption songs Redemption songs Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our mind Oh, have no fear for atomic energy Cause none of them can stop at the time How long shall they kill our prophets While we stand aside and look Yes, some say it's just a part of it We've got to fulfill the book Won't you help to sing Songs of freedom is all I ever had. Redemption songs, all I ever had. Redemption songs, these songs of freedom, songs of freedom. <laughs> 